Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, we look into the art of small talk and why it can sometimes feel mundane, but we find out why casual chit-chat is good for both your health and your happiness. We begin a five-part series looking into the issues affecting Canadian cities and begin with the always difficult problem of homelessness and ask, what is working in Canada these days and what is not? Police in Toronto announce an arrest in the murders of two women just months apart in 1983. And we discover how genetic genealogy is helping detectives crack some of the most difficult cold cases. But first, rare protests broke out over the weekend in several major Chinese cities, including Beijing and Shanghai, ostensibly over the continued zero-COVID policy. We find out what sparked them, how much of a threat is it to China's leadership, and how hard will authorities crack down on dissent. First, let's begin in China, because I'm not sure if you've seen images on social media over the weekend, but something happened over the weekend that happens very rarely there, and that was widespread protests. Um, They weren't massive by any standards, but they were big enough and they were angry enough. Um, In a nutshell, they have to do with frustration over what has been a very long period of very hard-hitting COVID restrictions. Zero COVID is what the policy is called there. And just to give you an idea of what that means, that means sort of weeks and weeks and weeks of lockdowns where you can't leave your house. You have to have, if you're lucky, the government delivers food to you. Now, this is not everywhere all at once, but these are the sorts of things that happens. Um, In some areas, you, you can be tested four or five, six times a week for COVID. And if you don't have your test results, you can't go shopping. You can't leave your compound where you live. It is it is incredibly severe. People here who complain about mask mandates, all that stuff about, you know, vaccine mandates at the border, this is nothing, nothing remotely like this. This is a, at a whole new level. So there was a fire in the western city of Urumqi recently. Um, a high-rise tower caught fire. Ten people died. That's in the uh, province of Xinjiang. Um, and part of the anger over that was there was concern that it was actually these restrictions that had led to parts of the lock, the lockdown itself that had trapped people in their apartments where they were, uh, inevitably, unfortunately left to die in this fire. So here's how it erupted. There were protests in many different cities, as many as seven over the weekend, including the capital of Beijing and dozens of university campuses. Here's what one of them sounded like. Now, there have been solidarity gatherings around the world, including here in Canada last night. Uh, this is Vancouver. The sound in Vancouver last night. Now, it appears to have died down a bit today. Um, there's been a heavy police presence in many areas. They put up barriers. There's a real way that they go about restricting these protests. And that seems to have kicked into gear uh, after what happened over the weekend. It also all comes as Canada releases its long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. They did that yesterday, uh, which promises new spending over the next five years, an increase in trade and so forth. And joining me now with more on this is Charles Burton. He's a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Thanks. Welcome back. It's good to speak with you, Ben. 
You know, uh, people always used to ask when, when I was living there, protests aren't unheard of. There are often protests in China, whether it be, you know, laborers angry about conditions at their factory or people who've been bilked out of money in a, in, a, in a development scheme. But we rarely see anything like this. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there have been these isolated um, incidents, you know, your typical thing, the factory manager takes all the funds and decamps to Toronto and the workers aren't getting their their salary and they're not getting their pension. And so they protest and then the local authorities come up with some solution and and everybody goes home more or less appeased. This is different. You know, this this is simultaneous demonstrations occurring in uh, seven different cities in China um, with some degree of interaction between them, probably using VPNs and Telegram. The police have been, you know, demanding that people show their phones so that they don't have these illegal VPNs or illegal encrypted uh, communications programs on them. Um, I think that, you know, the, the concern about these uh, demonstrations is that, of course, they are, as you say, stimulated by the tragic death of people that had been locked into their apartments and couldn't escape when the building went on fire. But I think they're also about, you know, a general attitude towards the current party leadership, um, you know, that, that Xi Jinping is is the leader, the leader more or less permanently, you know, who decided that aside from Mr. Xi and, and some cronies, you know, it doesn't reflect anything in the popular will. The um, declining economy, um, uh, internet censorship, uh, you know, some, some people were wearing masks that had 404 written on them for the error you get when you try and load up a site that's not allowed in China. Um, you know, uh, unemployment among youth, uh, and, of course, COVID and the fact that there's so many restrictions, you know, uh, people, a lot of people who are trapped in their apartments are not earning any income unless they're able to get out there and work. So I, I think that, that it's, a, it's a serious moment of, of um, the, co- the, you know, the, the coalescing of, of a whole lot of factors. And, and if we see you know, more instance like this, more tragic instance, or if COVID really starts to run rampant through China and you're seeing a high rate of, of disease and death, I, I think we really could see a, a popular movement that would demand uh, the end of Chinese communism. I think it could be that far. Wow, because that, I mean, it's always obviously, I, mean, I, I remember protests in China, even more coordinated ones back during the color revolutions or, or the flower revolutions in different parts of the world. There was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of a spark in China at one point. It went away very quickly. You know, the, the authorities are, are well used to crushing these sorts of things. Uh, and I think we're seeing it already. But w- yeah, really, to that extent, I, no, I think you're, when you talk about the fact that the anger is, the COVID is the spark, right? The heavy handedness is this around COVID is the spark. But, you know, the A4, the blank pages that people are holding up, that's not about yeah. COVID. That's about, that's about much more than that. That's about not having a voice. And, and you know, it's that, that uh, yeah, that, that could, you're right, that could certainly turn into something bigger if it were to continue. Yeah, I mean, the difference, you know, if you look back at the 1989 Tiananmen incident, at that time, people were calling for the party to bring in democratic reform. They weren't calling for, you know, the end of of the communist system in China. 
But this time, I, I think that they there really isn't, there aren't any figures in China that hold people's hope. And if the regime, you know, cracks down too hard on on these kinds of protests, then it'll bring more um, more popular support for the movement. If the regime does not crack down hard enough, then you could see the development of a of a political alternative underground that could corrode the system from within. You know, similar to like Václav Havel in in, the, in Czechoslovakia or Lech Walesa right. in Poland, where there was a sort of alternative um, vector for people to to pin their political aspirations to. So I, I, you know, it's hard to say if this thing will just fade away and be forgotten. But I think the factors that are leading to a, a great degree of dissatisfaction and alienation on the part of particularly young people uh, will endure. And so I don't think this thing will just go away by itself. What's interesting is you have perhaps one of the more patriotic generations now in this younger Chinese generation there. They're certainly not, you know, they're certainly not uh, anti-China by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the idea that they now are living under a leader who just anointed himself a dictator for life, essentially, um, may have not been as popular as he thought it was. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think, I mean, I don't think anybody, uh, aside from Mr. Xi and those around him, thought it was a good idea for him to have an indefinite term of office, you know, either within the party or outside the party. And so he may have gone a step too far. And I think his, you know, his interest in in fulfilling his, what he regards as destiny or the community of common destiny of mankind, the rejuvenation of China, the restoration of a China-oriented global order, you know, the Belt and Road reordering the entire global economy towards China. I mean, what these things are taking away from is actually dealing with the people, you know, dealing with the people's desire for for freedoms, for citizens' rights, for, for, for you know, cultural expression, all of which seem to be um, subordinated by sea to these these larger schemes based on on him spending a lot of time reading history books as opposed to to looking into how he can make the Chinese Communist Party relevant to the contemporary values of Chinese people you know it's yeah. just it's it's just the the party slogans the everything about the party is is really not very much connected to the life of of modern Chinese people today the central tenet of our Indo-Pacific strategy is acting in Canada's national interests without compromising our values. It is about positioning Canada as being a reliable partner now and for generations to come. Melanie Jolie in Vancouver yesterday. Charles Burton is with us. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. We're talking about uh, we were talking about protests in China, and as they were going on, uh, Canada releases this very important document on our approach to the Indo-Pacific. Um, I mean, that was that was <laughs> that was written by a you know that was written by communications staff clearly because she didn't say much in that clip. Um, but two point three billion dollars sounds okay in terms of funding. It seemed relatively well thought out. What did you think about uh, about what you heard? And is the devil in the details here? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, we're talking about four or five hundred million uh, a year. I mean, certainly there's some very high ambitions with regard to that money helping us to defend our Arctic against uh, China's 
uh, desire to to encourage to, to to have incursions into the Arctic region or to make a significant contribution to um, uh, the, you know, the United States, UK, and Australia in um, Indo-Pacific security, I think we'll have another one additional freighter that will be able to do things like freedom of navigation exercises. I, I'm not sure that that we're seeing anything which is a fundamental change in Canada's approach to to China. The the characterization of China is a bit mealy mouth, you know, um, increasing um, increasingly um, disruptive in, in, global power, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would yeah. prefer if we said it's a strategic competitor, you know, right. which is much more much more realistic and isn't mincing words because China is. And I'm not sure that our idea that we can, on the one hand, you know, um, um, not appease China on things like the Uyghur genocide or human rights and security issues and still um, maintain the trade relationship and, and engage China on multilateral matters like climate change or global poverty or or um, you know, putting the brakes on North Korea's like utterly terrifying uh, nuclear missile program. I you know I'll believe it when I see it, but uh, I, I would have liked to have seen the policy talk about a foreign influence transparency scheme act. You know, something that would require right. people who yeah. are influential in the China policy process having to to be transparent about any benefits that they're receiving from China so that we could assess conflict of interest. That's that's not in there. And they don't talk about genocide with regard to the Uyghurs, even though the Commons has a unanimous resolution that it is genocide. And there isn't much, you know, specific about whether we're going to do anything about Chinese operations on our soil to menace people in Canada, the police stations, the um, you know the election interference doesn't seem to be something which is highlighted, or um, you know or China's uh, pervasive espionage to obtain dual-use military technologies. I would have liked to have seen you know a bit more pointed language. Although I'm encouraged by by the government giving more resources to CSIS, RCMP, and Global Affairs to develop China expertise. I think that's got to be good. So. You know, you've got a policy, you hope they implement it, and I think that we will be pushed by our allies to to uh, have a stronger policy, more in alignment with what other countries are doing. You know, the British government announced a policy today, and it's much more direct and straightforward than than this document, which I think, as you suspect, was produced by some sort of communications team. <laughs> well, it sounded like it, you know, for generations. Anytime I hear for generations to come, I'm thinking, she didn't know, the minister <laughs> didn't write that. Uh, Charles, Burton, Charles Burton, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great to speak with you again, Ben. Tell me what you think about small talk. I don't mind small talk. I mean, there are days where, you know, I don't know, you get on the elevator and you have your head down and you're thinking about something and you're kind of, your head's in the clouds and maybe you don't want to talk about the weather. But in general, small talk is a really good way to feel like you're part of something, um, to feel like you're part of your community. At work, it's a really good way just to chat, just to get to know people who you don't necessarily work with all the time. Um, 
But I noticed in the early days, of course, of the pandemic, when there was so much remote work going on and we were kind of cut off from each other, cut off from our usual routines, small talk is one of those things that really vanished. And although there were valiant attempts to recreate the proper conditions for small talk in forums such as Zoom and so on, it never seemed to work properly. It sort of became appointment viewing, didn't it? Um, and there was, you know, conversations became pretty transactional. Now that things have loosened up and everyone sort of people are back at work and uh, businesses are open again, we're sort of back to our old routine in many, many ways. I was wondering just how much we've been able to pick up our small talk habits again, or did that muscle atrophy a bit while we were locked down, so to speak? Uh, did we lose our ability to chit chat? Because it turns out it's a really important part of how we deal with each other in, in, in a lot of different areas of life. Um, so not to minimize the importance of it, but uh, it improves our mood. Again, the atmosphere at work, it increases our sense of community outside the office and the home. Um, so how, why is that? How are we doing these days? Uh, has the art of small talk been lost forever? Or have we found our way uh, towards revitalizing it after a few years where, or at least a little while, where we really didn't get, get a chance to uh, exercise some of our small talk muscle too, too much. Well, joining me now with more on that is Jessica Mathot. She's an associate professor in management uh, at Rutgers University who studies social networks and their importance. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. You know, often when we talk about small talk, I, I get the impression we don't always we're not always talking about the same thing. So for the purposes of this conversation, what qualifies in, in your mind as small talk? Sure. And, you know, it's really important to start there and kind of lay the foundation for what it is we're actually defining as small talk in part because small talk is small talk is such a polarizing topic, right? So some people really love it. Others absolutely hate it. So what do we mean by that? Well, small talk has a couple of really important features that make it unique from other types of conversation. So for one, it's scripted, right? So it's polite, it's lighthearted, it follows a really predictable script. So it doesn't take a lot of effort and it doesn't really require a lot of self-disclosure. And so people can re-energize through these brief interactions. It's often spontaneous. So it can occur without being planned. You can bump into someone in the hallway and strike up a conversation. We call these usually casual collisions, and these can spark really creative ideas. And a final feature of small talk is that you can have it with anyone. So you could have small talk with a best friend, you could have small talk with a stranger. And there's research on the benefits and barriers to both, but they all kind of end up having similar outcomes. Yeah, and you've touched on the importance of it, right? Which is far beyond, unlike many conversations, the importance of small talk really goes far beyond the words being exchanged or the information being exchanged. Yeah, that's right. You know, we found and based on other research that had been done that small talk really makes up a good chunk, about one third of our conversations and that we've started to kind of develop small talk as a social ritual with our colleagues. Many of us have really built this into our days. So we greet people when we come into the office in the morning or we chat with coworkers to pass time. We take a break and we grab coffee and we re-energize before we go back to work. And so based 
based on all of these aspects, we found that small talk serves several really important functions. So for one, it eases transitions between roles or activities. So we really rarely begin a meeting or pop into someone's office without a little bit of small talk just to grease the wheels. So it helps us move from one activity to another. We have small talk before meetings, before interviews, before performance evaluations, sales pitches, negotiations. It's a social lubricant. And we also find that small talk sets the stage for building relationships. So it builds rapport. It sets a positive tone for an interaction. It simply just shows that we recognize someone else's presence, acknowledging that they're there and that we're co-present. And so that really helped us study small talk in this particular context. So we were studying small talk uh, pre-pandemic while most people were still co-located in a physical workspace. And we found that on days that people had more small talk than they normally would. They experienced a boost in mood and energy, uh, which then increased their pro-social behavior. So the extent to which they went out of their way to help their coworkers, and that it also increased their well-being and their ability to recover from stress at the end of the workday. Not surprisingly, and many of you who are listening to this might be thinking, well, it also is distracting. And right. we did find that, of course, right? So we're trying to do our work. We've got our heads down. We're in a flow and someone knocks on the door and asks a question. And it can be disruptive and it can be distracting. And it makes it difficult for us to return back to the mindset that we were in before. So it pulls our attention away for a bit. But the benefits that it added outweighed those negatives. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting in what you've been talking about uh, in the past is that how, and this was one of the issues during the pandemic when so many people were working remotely, is that often conversations within a workspace are, are relatively transactional and there's a power imbalance. So managers talk a lot, those who are being managed talk less, and that the small talk in some ways is the is the cure to that. And, and you know, it is the it is the remedy to, to that. If you feel like you do very little talking and a whole lot of listening, sometimes the small talk makes up for that imbalance. It's true. It can be the great equalizer, right? So everyone can participate. Now, it might not be the same across the board. So we might think about... Um barriers to engaging in small talk for people who may be expatriates, for example. Mm -hmm. So uh, previous research has found that small talk across cultures actually follows a very similar cadence, but the content of the small talk differs. We find that people who have joined organizations in different countries might struggle to participate in the type of small talk that others are having. If they're talking about network television or sports, right. it can be a barrier to participating. Yeah, I, I guess there is some navigation to be done, right? That's mm -hmm. that's part of the issue. It's such a reflection of of the culture that you're in, uh, mm -hmm. to some extent. What um, tell me a bit about what happened during the pandemic? Because because I think a lot of this was taught was the art of small talk had been lost because we had so we had far fewer connections at one. All of a sudden, you know, we weren't just we just weren't bumping into people anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Do you feel like we've we've started to find our way back, or are we still has has that muscle atrophied a little bit? It's been a really interesting couple of years to study this topic. So you'd mentioned that, you know, small talk can be transactional. One of the issues that we were seeing is that in an office space where people are co-located, they have the opportunity for that spontaneity. That spontaneity is really difficult to mimic in a virtual environment. 
So meetings are more planned, more intentional, more transactional when we're setting them up and meeting on Zoom, right? We're not bumping into each other uh, unintentionally and spontaneously in the hallway. So that serendipity gets lost. Um, When we are physically present in a conversation, it creates this energy, this sense of co-presence where people feel like they're in the conversation together and they can engage with each other in a way where this natural transfer of energy occurs and we can read each other's emotions, but that natural transfer of energy is eroding in a virtual environment. So we see each other on screens and our own faces on the screen, and that can get really distracting. And so it's really hard to have that same level of engagement in a virtual environment. And also one of the things that we were seeing during the pandemic is that this kind of chit chat just wasn't a priority, right? Like we were all pressed for time. We were experiencing Zoom fatigue and we were trying not to drag out these meetings for too long, but we should really recognize how meaningful just a little bit of small talk can be in combating social isolation and redressing some workplace loneliness. And so that small connection can make a really big difference. There was really interesting research that was done showing that even for organizations where their return to work strategies included a hybrid model where some days people were working remotely and some days people were working on site, if those days didn't uh, complement each other, where there were one or two employees who were coming in uh, to the office on certain days and others were staying home, the in-office employees felt lonelier. They thought, okay, I came to the office and now I'm here, but no one else is here and all of my meetings are still on Zoom. (laughs) So was this really, you know, a good, was this actually addressing the issue and remedying the issue? There are people who are studying what these return to work strategies look like and what those benefits are. And we're also seeing that while people are working from home, all of this kind of blurs together, right? So uh, there were articles that were coming out about how how people were missing their commutes because they weren't able to make that transition from home to work. They were just getting up, you know, getting ready and sitting down at their desk at home. And it was hard to shift that mindset from home to work as seamlessly as when we physically transition and interpersonally transition, where we see people, we chat with them, and we're able to shift to Uh, the work mindset. One of the things that I think we need to recognize about small talk, though, that's really interesting, and you know, some of your listeners might have heard about this news recently, where uh, there was a gentleman, an employee, who won a case suggesting that he does not have to have fun at work. Yes, I saw it in France. <laughs> right? right? Was that in France? Yes, yes. Exactly. And so, case. you know, and so uh, you know, a lot of organizations are trying to really push these social interactions and this social fabric of the organization onto employees who aren't as interested, where small talk can kind of bridge that gap to allow people to build rapport, to create a positive relationship and these high quality connections, even if they're fleeting, without having to dive really deep into these relationships and create close friendships that make people uncomfortable or that blur the lines between work and home too much. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you know clearly as someone I I I've often enjoyed small talk. That'll come as no surprise to anyone who listens to this show. Um, but I think within a, a physical environment, you recognize those who are comfortable and those who are less comfortable with it, so that you you all interact accordingly, right? Uh, whereas if you're doing it sort of forcing it upon people, you're then trying to throw everyone in the same basket, and that can be uncomfortable for those who who truly dislike that kind of social interaction. 
That's absolutely right. And, you know, we were see companies that were organizing these virtual happy hours. And I'm not sure anyone enjoyed that. No. <laughs> Even people who do like small talk, no. right? Because people are talking over each other and just the logistics of trying to have a group of people interact informally in a virtual environment can be really challenging. And we've seen a lot of these platforms um, exploding over the last couple of years where they're trying to create these virtual environments where people can join groups and talk and have their avatars and have it be a a little more similar to a real world environment, but it's really difficult to reorchestrate those those kinds of interactions. I, I think that's one of the most fascinating things that you've touched on is just how hard it is for us to replicate something that seems so routine and mundane, and yet we're, we're hard pressed to try to recreate it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we've seen some big flops from organizations. I want to say at least they're trying, they're recognizing how meaningful it is, how important it is. And some of them have misstepped in an effort to try to recreate uh, small talk in these informal interactions. But I have seen some effective steps that companies have taken. And this could vary by, you know, culture and uh, by employee. Uh, but some of the things that I've seen work are just really minor daily check-ins between coworkers to our direct reports, you know, just reaching out and saying, hey, it's been a little while, just making sure you're doing okay. Is everything, you know, do you need anything? Is everything going all right? We can also be a little more introspective. So assessing our own social health, right? A lot of the, the time we were thinking, you know, am I getting enough physical activity now that I'm working from home? Am I, uh, you know, thinking about my mental health? But we can also think about our social health. Am I feeling particularly disconnected today? Have I spoken to anyone outside of my household today? Right. Uh, and really making sure that we haven't unintentionally isolated ourselves. Because, yeah, it could be a, it could be a bit of a slippery slope if you do, right? Right, right, exactly. And, you know, we lose track of that. And I think that happened a lot over the past couple of years is, you know, we thought about the best ways to create a work from home environment that allowed us to be productive and allowed us to be successful, not necessarily prioritizing the social aspect of what that means and what we might have lost. And we've seen a lot of reports about how nostalgic people were feeling for those social interactions and for small talk that they initially would have, you know, said was entirely awkward and inauthentic and annoying and frustrating and unnecessary that they really longed for that small talk once they didn't have access to it anymore. Jessica Mathod, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. As we head into another Canadian winter, clearly life on the streets in this country is and will continue to be deadly for some. Just last week, I was reading today that a 35-year-old man died at a public washroom right outside Moncton City Hall in New Brunswick after frontline workers were unable to find a shelter bed for him. Luke Anthony Laundry had just been released from provincial prison that same day. A report state that he had been he'd overdosed earlier at a supervised overdose site. Staff there tried to get him into a shelter, then tried to find him a hotel. None of it worked. Um, maybe just one case, but it does speak to that far greater problem that has gone on for years. And while I gather there's been progress, because I see it here even in Victoria, where I am, where there's been a real concerted effort to find shelter for people who want it, certainly people who need it, but definitely people who want it, um, to try to get people off the street, to try to get them at least onto that first rung of having a roof over your head. Um, but you also get the sense that sometimes it's getting worse. Uh, the federal government, for instance, has a national housing strategy that targets reducing chronic homelessness by 50% by 2027-2028. Um, but the Auditor General found recently 
uh, in a report made public earlier this month that the departments in charge of making that happen actually don't really know if the money they're spending is being spent effectively, if it's actually making a difference. Well, joining me now with more on this is Tim Richter. He's founder, president, and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Thanks so much for your time. Good evening. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, it's always one of those. I mean, I feel like so often we look at the picture of, of, of where this, what the state of homelessness is anecdotally. Like, what's in, what's, what do I see on mm-hmm. the street? And I guess that's not, the, not necessarily the most scientific way of looking at it. What is the situation heading into winter 2022? Well, unfortunately, we're we're facing a wave of new homelessness in in Canada, driven uh, in part by uh, in part by the pandemic, and now um, by the cost of living crisis. And you know, we we know that uh, people that are living in low incomes, for example, feel inflation much uh, much worse than we do than most most folks do, most middle income uh, folks do, because. You know, the vast majority of their household income, household budget is going toward paying for food and shelter, which is which are two of the most expensive uh, things going on right now. So, you know, the real inflation rate, if you're a, a household in Vancouver or in Toronto or in some other cities is, you know, closer to 30 percent if you're on, uh, on uh, a low income household. So uh, that's propelling a lot of people into uh, in the homelessness across the country. I can imagine one of the real difficulties is, for instance, if you're renting and you lose that place, trying to find something mm-hmm. new that's affordable to you. Well, that's right. You know, the whole, you know, Canada's been in the grips of the housing crisis for about 40 years now. Uh, and, you know, it's just been snowballing or compounding over the years. And so the whole housing system, whether you're, you know, uh, trying to get into your first, uh, to buy your first home or you're trying to get into the rental market, it's really, really tough uh, to find things that are affordable. I saw a stat the other day that a average apartment in Toronto now is about $3,000 a month. Yeah, it's not uh, not many people can afford that, right? Let alone right. Uh, let alone with a family or when you have other expenses. Are we seeing? Um, I mean, I, I guess homelessness has many many faces, right? Sometimes we mm-hmm. see sort of the street, the our idea of street homelessness, you know, the tents on the street and so on. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's much more complicated in terms of what it really looks like, the real portrait of homelessness across Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting that for the vast majority of people, homelessness tends to be fairly brief. Like it, uh, people are in and out in days or weeks. But then there are are folks, and you referred in your in your opening about chronic homelessness. There are folks that end up uh, on the street and and staying there for a long time. You know, over over six months, some for years. I've run into people that have been. Uh, I've I've know of people that have been homeless. You know, decade or more. You know, it's uh, it's quite something, and it and it's it's really deadly. Like it erases. It can cut a person's life expectancy in half, right? I'm I'm 52 years old, and I'm well older now than than the average life expectancy of someone experiencing chronic homelessness. What do you feel like the the public attitude? Because often, you know, the, the issue of homelessness gets gets intertwined with other societal issues like the opioid crisis, um, mm-hmm. tent cities, and some of the anger that exists around around that. Uh, how do you feel? The, social, the conversation about homelessness has evolved over the last mm-hmm. few years. You know, a couple of years ago, two summers ago, we did a poll. And it, what was really interesting to me was just how many Canadians are touched by homelessness. So in the, in the poll we ran um, by Nanos uh, Research, 
they found that 36% of Canadians either have experienced homelessness themselves or know somebody who has. About 5% of that 36 are people that have experienced it themselves. That's 1.6 million people or so, uh, give or take. And so I think it's something that is closer to a lot of people than, than we might think. Uh, I think most Canadians, um, you know, want governments in particular to do more about it. The vast majority, somewhere in the neighbourhood, 80% in that same poll said governments should be doing more on affordable housing and, and homelessness. But, uh, you know, to be fair to folks too, I think if you're, you know, walking through the downtown east side of Vancouver or you have a large encampment, uh, near where you are or you're interacting with homelessness, uh, people experiencing homelessness a lot, you you might feel a little a little scared, right? Like I can appreciate that uh, that concern. But um, you know the, the good news is this is a this is a problem we can solve. Yeah, and how do you? I mean, it feels like we've been. I mean, we've seen advances. I think I've seen. I think we've seen a difference in perception about the causes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly about how to try to find you know some of the solutions that work. Trying to get people off the street into temporary accommodation to allow them to at least have a roof over their heads to start building back up towards uh, more secure and permanent housing. Um, but what are some of the things that we're we're not doing well right now? Well, you know what uh, I think that. I, I think about homelessness, and I often term it a an unnatural disaster um, because it has the same scale. It affects the same number of people. It costs the economy the same amount of money. It's the biggest natural disasters in Canada or Canada has ever experienced. It, you know, it impacts 235,000 different Canadians every year. 35,000 on a given night cost the economy over seven billion dollars. Um, but with but. There's, and there's really no difference between homelessness as a result of a natural disaster and homelessness caused by poverty and policy. And the, the big difference is how we approach solving it. Now, I'm calling in from Calgary. 2013, we had a flood here, and you, you would have heard about. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, 75,000 yes. households were, were kicked out of their homes. Lost their homes due to, due to the flooding, either lost or they were damaged, but they had to they had to leave. None of those people are still homeless. None of them. And the difference is, in a natural disaster, you know, there's an emergency. There's city has an emergency response. Uh, the senior levels of government uh, come in to support the city leadership. There's clear leadership at the city level. They have a plan. They have a they have a command center to coordinate the activity. They focus on keeping people safe in the emergency, and then they are working really quickly to move people into into their own homes. And they even begin to think about prevention. You know, the floodwater hadn't receded here in Calgary, and they're already talking about upstream measures to prevent the floodwaters from damaging the, the city like it had. But when we talk about homelessness, we stop at the emergency response. We think, well, we've got to build shelters. I mean, ultimately, the end of homelessness is a home, right? And so we have to really think about housing, income, and supports people will need to sustain their housing. Yeah, it always feels like there's, you know, there's kind of two different streams going on. And again, I mean, there's, as you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. a vast majority of people who find themselves homeless, it's temporary, and they do find their way back onto their feet. And uh, But for chronic homelessness that we talked about earlier, 
and which the federal mm -hmm. government's trying to cut back on. Uh, you always think about the two streams, whereas there's a, a lot of political pressure to get people off the streets, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's not always the way, I mean, and it's important clearly to get people off the streets at all times. But if you look at, at just like food banks, if you look at shelters as being a solution, then you have a problem. That's right. Yes, exactly. And uh, my one of my concerns is as we see um, more encampments, uh, more people becoming homeless, shelters becoming more full, that we we will the governments will reflexively go back to an emergency response. Like let's just build more shelters. Let's you know use the police to sweep people out of encampments. And those things um, those things can provide temporary, but it's elusive and illusionary. Uh, kind of benefit because it doesn't actually solve the problem and, and in fact in many ways makes it a whole lot worse a whole lot more expensive pretty cruel and way more dangerous Tim Richter is with us this half hour founder, president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness we're talking about homelessness clearly uh, all week we'll be talking about some of the issues that cities in Canada continue to face homelessness of course a long term one but 235,000 people a year, you were saying, 35,000 people mm -hmm. a night in this country, $7 billion it costs our economy, which seems like, a, as you mentioned, it is a unnatural disaster, something that happens at all times. When you look at mm -hmm. some of the things that have worked of late, what would you point mm -hmm. to? Well, it's, uh, you know, we, we can look around the world and see examples. You know, you look at places like Finland, um, who has done a ex rather extraordinary job of reducing homelessness nationwide. Um, they focused on something called Housing First, which is, I, I often joke, it's truth in advertising. We're going to move people directly off the streets and into housing without a bunch of preconditions and provide them the wraparound supports to stay there. But closer to home, you know, we've seen success in Medicine Hat, Alberta, that ended chronic homelessness. London, Ontario ended veteran homelessness. Ottawa you know, has reduced chronic homelessness 15%. Sault Ste. Marie has reduced chronic homelessness. Other examples like that right here at home. And, and you know, they have uh, a lot of things in common. You know, they're focused on ending homelessness, not managing the emergency. So the, the first step is to say, as you said earlier, you know, we're not going to solve it with an emergency shelter. We're going to solve it with housing. So let's move, you know, move people in, into housing. You know, they set up coordinated uh, coordinated systems uh, at uh, in their communities that are focused on on ending homelessness. They use data to see where they can make improvements. They understand, they know exactly who's who's experiencing homelessness in their community by name. They know everyone, uh, and they use that data to be constantly, you know, driving improvement. And I said, the model to solve it is just like the model that cities would use if, God forbid, a natural disaster hits. When you look at some of the residual impacts, the domino effect of having people on the street, you would think, too, that a strained healthcare system would also suffer. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, I'm in Victoria, which has its own set of issues, but, you know, the, um, mm -hmm. the you know people on the street, certainly the addiction crisis here is added to that, but the combination of addiction and homelessness has, mm -hmm. has obviously leads to outcomes that, that impact an already strained healthcare system, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you, you know, you, the, the thing that's a, a, is a bit crazy about homelessness and just leaving it to, to continue to get worse or to focus on the emergency is that you, from a, from a public system or public policy point of view, you have people bouncing around, 
aimlessly through very expensive systems, whether it's court, uh, policing, healthcare, uh, justice, aimlessly moving around those systems, none of which are taking accountability for their housing outcome. You look at the story that you led with, that mm-hmm. gentleman in, in New Brunswick was sent directly from provincial jail, directly from jail onto the streets without winter clothes, without a place to go, any sort of that accountability. But then you look at a place like Medicine Hat, where you know they've ended chronic homelessness. If you're released from prison in Medicine Hat, and there's a remand center nearby, um, there's a phone call made from the remand center to the housing people if they know somebody that's being released has not got a place to go. And they can work out how to make sure that person gets into uh, gets into safe housing. And, you know, in the, the federal government and provincial governments all wondering how to reduce recidivism in their jails. Well, the big common denominator is housing. Housing and yeah. then supports for addiction and mental health issues. And it feels like if we tackle the chronic homelessness part, we'll be far better prepared to tackle the sorts of um, the kind of homelessness we may be seeing more of now, given the high price of high cost of housing and the high cost of everything else. Yeah, well, uh, most people, um, the vast majority of people who are in housing need in Canada, about three quarters of them, uh, and the vast majority of people who experience homelessness are only homeless because of uh, a lack of a loss of income or an inability to afford, find affordable housing, right? So with just income support, if every province indexed their disability payments and their welfare payments to inflation, you would cut homelessness significantly because it's just a factor of being poor, right? Well, indeed. And, 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 but, but as you pointed out earlier, the issue is that if you let people slip through the cracks, say you have a, you know, a belief that this is, you know, you, you should be responsible for your own well-being and so on. But I feel mm-hmm. like if you let people slip through the cracks, it ends up costing society even more. Yeah, well, and, and that's exactly it. And, you know, I think, you know, when we are thinking about our approach to homelessness, I think we're, we also are having a very important philosophical discussion about is, is our country, is our province, is our city going to be just about me? And what, what's what's in this for me, or are we going to be thinking about the the collective good? And in this case, you know, solving homelessness, I think, is an expression of community in common. You know, trying to support the common good and support our, our neighbors and support our families. But frankly, as a you know, as a taxpayer, it's also good for me as an individual because it will you know, uh, less of my tax dollars are going to go to broken and inefficient public systems that are just letting people balance aimlessly through until they, uh, until they unfortunately pass away too early. Are you concerned at all about a bit of the change in the tone, though? I think there is, and you mentioned it earlier, there is a frustration that's built, you know, because there are mm-hmm. clearly a very small segment of the homeless population, you know, of the, of the, of the vulnerable population, to be honest. And it's a mm-hmm. myriad of things. It's addiction, it's mental health, it's homelessness, and mm-hmm. so on, who have, who have caused a fair amount of havoc in, in, in certain small areas, in certain cities at certain times. And you feel, the, the, you feel a bit of the anger rising against them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that that anger is is misdirected, right? Like, I, I think it's the, the anger should frankly be directed at elected leaders, and frustration should be directed at elected leaders. And I actually, I think uh, watching what's happening in British Columbia, it's quite interesting to see the new premier Evie taking 
taking charge and saying, you know what, we're going to, we're going to solve this. I'm going to take responsibility for, for solving, you know, for coordinating the response in the downtown east side is pretty rare for governments to, yeah. to take that kind of a accountability. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the first step when, you know, we can talk about all the programs and policies and all, all that stuff <laughs> till we're, till we're blue in the face, but the places that have succeeded, yes. the places that have succeeded is down to leadership. Someone has taken control of the situation and made a prior, made it a priority to fix yeah. it. Tim Richter, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. The way that science has impacted the world of crime solving is always fascinating. I mean, I know CSI is fiction and a lot of what they do is fictional, but it just gives you an idea of, of where science can make things happen, where cold cases can become, can be cracked by science. And such as this one, 40 years, nearly 40 years, the identity of a person responsible for the murders of two women in Toronto, just months apart, remained a mystery. 45-year-old Susan Tice, 22-year-old Aaron Gilmore were both sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in their homes in 1983. There was really nothing to link the cases, despite the fact they happened just months and just kilometers apart. Then in 2000, the first breakthrough. DNA evidence allowed police to determine that the same person had been responsible for both those deaths. And now, 22 years after that, and nearly 40 years after those murders, DNA has once again played a key role in leading police to a suspect. Joseph George Sutherland, 61 years of age, of Moussinie, has been charged under the 1983 Criminal Code with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. As relieved as we are to announce this arrest, it will never bring back Aaron or Susan. Now, apparently, uh, Joseph Sutherland was living in Toronto at the time, but he was arrested by provincial police in the remote town of Moosonee, which is near James Bay. It's about 850 kilometers north of Toronto. Now, for the families of the victims, this has been a long and painful wait with very little in the way of answers. Uh, Aaron's brother, Sean McCowan, spoke at the police press conference this morning. On behalf of Aaron's family and many, many friends, we're all very, very happy that an arrest has obviously been made in the vicious murders of Aaron and Susan Tice. The last few days have brought around a full spectrum of emotions, as you can imagine. And this is a day that I and we have been waiting almost an entire lifetime for. Nearly 40 years. Given the passage of time, police will obviously be looking into other cases to see if their suspect, Joseph Sutherland, is linked to any other unsolved cases. Now, that suspect has been in Ontario for 39 years since these murders. So obviously, we're going to look into every possible connection to any possible case throughout Ontario to ensure that he isn't responsible for any other offences. So how did they do it? How did they manage to find a suspect who was never on the radar back when the murders were committed? Well, in 2019, they began using a technique called investigative genetic genealogy to identify the suspect's family group. The process involves cross-referencing DNA found at crime scenes with those DNA samples that people voluntarily submit to services like 23andMe or Ancestry.ca that are then uploaded to open source databases. The researchers then work backwards to build a family tree to try and pinpoint the suspect. Um, this is how they identified the person ultimately responsible for the death of nine-year-old Christine Jessup, the murder of Christine Jessup back in 1984, for which, of course, Guy Paul Morin was, was, was wrongly convicted. 
Um, so how exactly does it work? Well, one of the people who worked on that Jessup case and who's been really involved in this from the outset is uh, my next guest, Dr. Anthony Redgrave. He's lead forensic genetic genealogist at Redgrave Research Forensic Services. He can't comment on this latest arrest. But again, he and his team have worked on some of the most high-profile cases uh, using this technology. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. This is, I think, a really, I mean, I think people read about these cases and how they're solved. And we think, you know, of, of a whole slew of cases of late where we hear about uh, genetic genealogy. But tell me exactly how it works. What It seems like such a fascinating way of trying to find the answers to some of these uh, these old mysteries. The simplest way I can put it is that it's very similar to the method used by adoptees or people who don't know who their birth father is to find those relatives. But we have the added complication of the person we're trying to identify not being able to speak for themselves and tell us things like how old they are, where they were born. And so we work primarily with anthropologists, medical examiners, and homicide detectives to fill in those gaps and get sort of a profile of who we're looking for, whether it's an unidentified deceased person or a perpetrator of a violent crime, to sort of get as close to that estimate that you would have from a living person as possible. And then from there, we do generally the same kind of research of looking at the unidentified person's DNA matches that are available in, in a database. We only use GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA for forensic use. They're the only ones that we're allowed to use. Mm -hmm. And we'll go through all the people in that database who share any amount of DNA with the person we're trying to ID, usually from greatest to least and figure out how they all relate to each other. And then it turns into sort of a logic puzzle. If you have two or more individuals who are genetically related to each other and you know where they come from and who their common ancestors are, and then you have an additional unidentified person and you don't know where they come from, you can assume that if they all share DNA together that the unidentified person probably comes from the same family group. Seems simple enough, but then we have to do it three or four or a hundred more times and find out where all of their family lines come together to make the person that we're looking for. Yeah, I gather it's a very complicated way of building out a family tree of, a, of somebody, whether it be an unidentified victim or an unidentified perpetrator or alleged perpetrator. Yes, there's some additional complications that make forensic cases harder than adoptee cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, the methodology is basically the same, but we have the added complication of not being able to contact those matches unless there's an extreme circumstance that necessitates it because we don't want to expose sensitive case information or even let people know that we're working. We work very quietly. We try to get as much information on the DNA matches as possible without having to contact them. Hopefully, if they've attached a tree to their DNA kit so we can just look at it. If not, then we'll have to just figure it out on our own. And that's especially important with perpetrator cases because obviously the more sensitive nature of them. And we're usually not looking at people who are closely related enough that they're going to know the person we're going to ID, mm. but we still don't want to run any risks of exposing any information. So secrecy is very important. <laughs> yes, no doubt, because that's how you got your start, right? You, you got your start in this by looking for birth parents. Yes. So my my husband, Lee, is an adoptee, and I didn't know who my father was. So we both 
were self-taught how to actually do this kind of research. We learned on our own cases. I didn't know my birth father. I also didn't know my maternal grandfather's family. So those were difficult puzzles that I ended up having to resort to DNA to solve. And from there, we worked on friends' cases that we practiced on, and then we went on to take cases professionally. And the puzzles we were working on got easier, and we then found ourselves working in forensics. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a remarkable story. I, I mean, what what's so fascinating about it, I imagine it, it, it's so, it must have been very emotional for you to trace back and walk back into your own family this way. But I know it must be it must be emotional too when you start to look into other cases and looking for these answers. Because oftentimes these these are mysteries that have laid dormant for years. These are families that have had questions about these cases for many, 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 many years. And you're sort of helping turn back the clock to some extent. That's a really critical thing for you know our our team of of student interns who work on cases with us. Something that I try to help them understand when they're getting into working with us is that it is going to be emotional work. And we absolutely experience things like proxy trauma when we're looking at difficult case details because we end up being privy to things that aren't public knowledge because that'll help us with our with our search. If we have more details of who we're looking for, then it'll be easier for us to look. But things like the Jessup case that, that we worked on, that was incredibly difficult for our team because, you know, this was a little girl. Right. Um, I remember that for listeners who might forget, uh, Christine Jessup was a Toronto girl who was uh, who was killed back in 1984. There was a wrongful conviction. Eventually, with the help of, of uh, genetic genealogy, uh, what we believe to have been the real perpetrator was identified. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. When you realize the ripple effect of all the people that cases like this affect, it doesn't only affect the families of the victims, it also affects the investigators who right. have devoted their entire lives to working on these cases. And again, in the case of Christine Jessup, there was a man who was wrongfully convicted, Guy Paul Moran, mm -hmm. and he was exonerated, but there was always this cloud hanging over him of continued suspicion because there wasn't a new suspect put forward. And when the announcement came that the case had been solved, the thing that he actually articulated was it was like he had been freed twice. And that hit me. Like We have some other wrongful conviction cases that we have working on. And that just like gave me an even bigger drive to put more effort towards that. The applications of forensic genetic genealogy are vast. Dr. Anthony Redgrave is with us this half hour. He's lead forensic genetic genealogist at Redgrave Research Forensic Services. We're talking about uh, just how genetic genealogy works. Uh, there was an announcement from Toronto Police today about a, the arrest of a suspect in a cold case dating back to 1983, the murders of two Toronto women, uh, and a suspect arrested um, through the same process, a suspect by the name of Joseph George Sutherland, who's now uh, in in custody with Toronto police. And we've been talking just about how it works. Uh, Dr. Redgrave, what, I mean, you really kind of, I mean, you and others have pioneered this in some ways. It's not seen as, I mean, it's really a growing and very important uh, branch of all this, but it's very new. It It is very new, actually. Um, you know, we, uh, my, my husband and I, we, we started working these cases when there hadn't even been a case announced yet as being solved. We started with the DNA Doe project when they, before they even finished their nonprofit application, we, we were on board with their first couple of cases. I helped with developing their internal training. I was the training coordinator and I went on from there to build a online course and immersive training situation for, for people who want to learn 
how to do this. You know, I ended up training departments literally all over the world, you know, through the through the course that I developed, I think I've taught people in Australia, Brazil, the UK, uh, obviously Canada, the Netherlands. I'm just so glad that I can I can share what we've cultivated to get more of these cases solved. And it's amazing to see departments take the initiative to do internal trainings to be able to handle these cases themselves. And I've been seeing a lot of that happening. I've, I've uh, supported a couple of departments in setting up their, their divisions that work on these cases. So in an ideal world, people won't need me anymore. <laughs> but yeah. still, there's only a small handful of people of high caliber who can really crunch on the more difficult cases. And I'd love to see more people get there. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what's, what one of the things that's fascinating about, it, of course, is that DNA and, and the and the you know, the supply of DNA from a crime scene is not finite, or it's, it's not infinite, it's finite. So you have to be, I mean, it's a very delicate process from beginning to end, right? Getting the right DNA, DNA information, uh, going into the databases of these different genealogy organizations to try to find what you're looking for. I mean, it's 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 not easy, or it doesn't look, it's not not like watching CSI, in other words. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely not like CSI. One thing I can tell you about the difference between working a John or Jane Doe case versus working a perpetrator case is because exactly like you said, the the amount of DNA is quite finite. In the case of a perpetrator case, you may not even know if a biological sample left at a site belonged to the perpetrator. There could be a mixture of, of samples. And this is uh, one of the crucial things on the outset of a case is getting that really good usable d- digital DNA file. There's been also a number of advances in lab science that have made that so much easier. When we first started working on these cases, the amount of DNA that was required to get a usable kit for forensic genetic genealogy when we started four or five years ago, what we can work with now, what labs can work with now to get a usable kit is like less than a tenth of that. That's amazing. Like, this is inspiring a lot of innovation in a lot of interdisciplinary fields. And it's just really encouraging to see these cases get closed out. Yeah, I, I know there's sometimes concerns over privacy when people submit their, their you know, when they're looking for to see if they have relatives in another part of the world, they submit their DNA to these organizations. How does that sit with you? At least here at, at Redgrave Research, we take the privacy of the DNA matches just as seriously as the privacy of the case. All the people who we work with have a non-disclosure agreement, and when we submit reports, we remove any identifying information of any DNA matches as we possibly can. So that doesn't even always make it back to the department. What we give them is the scientific report that they need to right. uh, you know, get a warrant or issue a death certificate or something, but they don't need to know the names of the DNA matches and their great, great grandparents and so forth. They don't see the whole puzzle that you would see. Yes. uh, Unless it's specifically requested or if I'm training a department, we will keep as much information about living people out of reports as possible because we value the, the the privacy and security of the DNA matches. They're, they're our bread and butter. We need those DNA matches in order to work cases like this. So you know, it's slightly different because we're based in the US and uh, we aren't covered by the, the GPDR Act. So we're able to get a lot more information on living people in the US than we are in Canada. And that's right. actually one thing when when we've worked on Canadian cases, for example, for example, Christine Jessup and, and the Babes in the Woods. We 
worked closely with the departments while we were working on those cases. If we ran into an issue of not having enough information, we would we would ask them for an assist. But we did that incredibly rarely because, again, we value people's privacy. Right. Tell me about the Babes in the Woods, because that's a Vancouver case, and it's a very old one. Uh, we now know a brother, stepbrothers found um, in the park many, many, 70 years ago, I think. Um, and, and you're working on that. What can you tell us about where you are with that one? What I can tell you about that is that our work on that case is done. The the lab was only able to get usable DNA kit for one of the boys, but it was enough to identify both of them as as it was found that they were indeed half brothers. Mm-hmm. Until and unless we are asked to participate more, we're we're pretty much done with that one. We're just very glad that we were able to give some families some answers that they were looking for and give decades of investigators an answer because, again, that was one that there were investigators who based their entire career around that and the peace of mind that comes from these kind of case closures. Like I said, it it extends to more than just the families. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, some of these cases you've worked on are cases that really saw no hope of ever being solved unless something like this came along to help. Yes. And uh, something that I like to stress about the effectiveness of forensic genetic genealogy is that as long as there is a usable DNA sample, and as long as that sample has been stored appropriately so that it can be extracted from and made into a digital file, technically, any of these cases are only going to get easier to solve because you have a seemingly infinite number of relatives and any number of those relatives may eventually get a DNA kit. So the the databases are just getting bigger. We're getting more data and that will make it easier for some of these older cases to get solved. Like we've worked on a number of many decades old cases that it was actually something about the age of the case itself that made it slightly easier to solve because also records open up after a certain amount of time you can get older records much easier than newer ones. So yes, this is very effective for older cold cases. And that's actually our favorite ones to work on. The older ones. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that when you and your husband sat down to try to figure out more about your own families, you ever thought it would lead to this, but it's a fa- fascinating, <laughs> fascinating uh, work that you're doing. Dr. Redgrave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. 